Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from remarkably sunny Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, speaking from Washington, D.C. Today, just about a year after Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we are talking about how that war in Ukraine has affected the country's Jewish communities and how it has affected Ukraine-Israel relations. Together with the Ukrainian uh, Jewish Federation, we are doing our best to provide for those Jewish Ukrainian refugees that have nowhere else to go. People are surviving, people are living and staying there, so there will be a Jewish community. How large it will be, it depends a lot on how long this war will take, definitely. Since long before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, accusations of anti-Semitism and Nazism have been a central element of the information war on both sides. But the start of the invasion saw an intensification of that rhetoric. Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, named denazification as one of the key justifications and goals uh, for his invasion, a claim that seemed absurd since it was being used against a country led by a president, Vladimir Zelensky, born to a Ukrainian Jewish family. We should recognize this Nazist, unjustified, substance. So that in Ukraine we will Accusations of anti-Semitism in Russian propaganda as a pretext to undermine Kiev's government aren't new. After the overthrow of Viktor Yanukovych and the subsequent conflict between Russia and Ukraine that started in 2014, Russian media outlets have repeatedly portrayed the Ukrainian government as controlled by an ultranationalist fascist political class. With the full-scale invasion last year, this rhetoric has further ramped up, often overplaying the importance and size of anti-Semitic elements in Ukrainian politics, society, and its military. Ukraine, for its part, has also made use of this type of rhetoric, referring to Ukraine's struggle against Nazis in the Second World War in the way it talks about the Russian invasion, and referring to Russians as Russists, a melding of Russian and fascist. And the real reason why uh, Putin uh, attacked Ukraine is to solve Ukrainian question, like Hitler wanted to solve Jewish question. He hates our state. He uh, hates our nation. He denies us the right to be an independent country. I think that he's a Hitler of our time. Meanwhile, amidst all this talk of anti-Semitism, the last year of war has, of course, displaced millions of Ukrainians, among them probably tens of thousands of actual Ukrainian Jews. Thousands of those have gone to Israel, as have tens of thousands of Russians who have fled their own country since the invasion began. Meanwhile, Kiev has often been critical of Jerusalem's position on the war, which has seen as insufficiently supportive of Ukraine and Israel's failure to send military aid. To talk about all of this, we're delighted to welcome Sam Sokol. Sam is a reporter for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz and previously worked for the Jerusalem Post and various other Israeli news outlets. 
He has frequently visited Ukraine and has written extensively on the situation of Ukrainian Jews in the Donbass and elsewhere. His book on this topic is entitled Putin's Hybrid War and the Jews, Antisemitism, Propaganda and the Displacement of Ukrainian Jewry. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you for having me. So, Sam, I was in Ukraine recently and sitting in a Kiev hotel bomb shelter. I was chatting with a Ukrainian journalist uh, wearing a kippah uh, who said he was Orthodox, that he had become an Orthodox Jew a couple of years ago, having grown up in a secular family. And he told me that there is no anti-Semitism in Ukraine. Uh, is he right? I wish he was, but the level of anti-Semitism in Ukraine has been grossly, grossly exaggerated by the Russians for propaganda purposes. As you mentioned, this goes back all the way to 2014 after the Euromaidan revolution, the revolution of dignity, which saw Ukrainians uh, rise up en masse to get rid of a very corrupt and pro-Russian president. And after that happened, one of the in one of his first speeches following the revolution, Putin decried what he saw or not what he saw or what, but what he wanted people to see as a rampage of quote reactionary forces, including anti-Semitism across Kiev and the country. Now, while it's true that there were a number of anti-Semitic incidents across Kiev during the revolution, Ukraine is not a particularly anti-Semitic country in terms of the number of incidents that occur. There are problems. There has been anti-Semitism in the mainstream discourse over the years. There have definitely been incidents of vandalism and violence, but compared to most Western countries, anti-Semitism in Ukraine, and indeed in most of Central and Eastern Europe, is very, very low. The issue at hand here is that Putin wanted to try to take advantage of the legacy of the Greek Patriotic War, the Second World War, uh, which still has a great deal of resonance in Russian society, to try to paint his political opponents, in this case the Ukrainians, as fascists, to justify the action that he would go on to take in annexing the Crimean Peninsula and fomenting a uh, a war in the eastern Donbass uh, region in the uh, Donetsk and Lugansk provinces. So, this is really the background to that. When he started talking about denazification in 2022, it was a new term, but it was the same style of propaganda he's been using for a decade. I think it's fair to say that there are some notable far-right elements in Ukrainian politics, as well as in the military. You have the uh, Svoboda party and the Azov regiment uh, being very prominent examples. How... I mean, you said that it, the, the anti-Semitism isn't as large a problem as it is in other parts of Western, Western Europe, but there is a problem of anti-Semitism, uh, in Ukraine, or there's some elements there. And how has the Ukraine government been addressing them? Uh, you are correct about that. That is one of the reasons I got started in reporting about Ukraine was because at the time of the Euromaidan protests, I was the, diaspora correspondent to the Jerusalem Post, and I covered anti-Semitism on my beat. And there had been a great deal of worry among Ukrainian Jews since the 2012 elections when Svoboda gained more than 7% of representation in the Vukovnarada in the Ukrainian parliament. And there was 
really a lot of concern about the rise of the far right in Ukraine. And that narrative seemed to be confirmed during the initial days of the, uh, of the protests because the protests came along with a series of bloody attacks on, uh, outwardly Orthodox Jews in Kiev's Podil neighborhood, which is one of the Jewish strongholds of the capital. And one thing we saw was that after the Euromaidan, the first temporary cabinet that Ukraine had before the first free elections after the revolution had several uh, ministers who were members of Svoboda. And this is something that the Russians really took advantage of. And at the time, many people, including myself, were highly concerned about. Uh, but what we saw after the uh, first elections following the Maidan was that Svoboda, which is explicitly anti-Semitic and racist, went from about 7% of parliament to almost nothing. I think after that election, they had maybe one seat left out of hundreds of deputies. And that's because the reason that many people supported it wasn't for the expressly anti-Semitic elements, but for the anti-Russian nationalism. And when that those themes were co-opted by more mainstream parties and actors, support for the far right cratered. Now, there are still issues with the far right and with racism. What we saw even after the Maidan was that there were a number of vandalism attacks against synagogues. Uh, a memorial at the Babinyar Holocaust massacre site was vandalized repeatedly, I think six times in one year. There was an incident a few years ago, someone trying to attack a synagogue in Mariupol, I think it was, with an axe. But for the most part, dozens of Ukrainian Jews that I interviewed over the years have said that they were much less concerned about anti-Semitism than about Russian aggression. Anti-Semitism after the Euromaidan really became much less of a concern. And as I said, Ukraine is largely in line with regional trends, including in Russia. So Russian claims that Ukraine is expressly uh, and inherently anti-Semitic are problematic. Now, what we did see were attacks on other groups. We saw the rise of certain far-right uh, groups like the National Corps, which uh, attacked members of the Roma community and members of the LGBT community. I have a friend who's a foreign correspondent who was covering an LGBT march and was physically assaulted by people from the far right. So that was definitely a problem. But I think, as always in Ukraine, things are much, are worse than the Ukrainians claim and much better than the Russians are saying. And I think that's the, the theme that we really have to, you know, sort of remember. That's, it's, it's a recurrent leitmotif. The Ukrainians will downplay and the Russians will take any incident that occurs and turn it into something very large. Now, the Ukrainians did hand the Russians a huge propaganda win, though, because after the revolution, there was a big push to decommunize Ukraine, which is to say to shed Russian cultural and historical narratives to create a new Ukrainian identity. And this is something, again, that's common across the region. You see this in Poland and Lithuania and Hungary. You need a new legitimizing national narrative and you need new national heroes. And since the Ukrainians were then fighting against Russian aggression, they naturally turned to look to figures who had previously fought for Ukrainian independence and fought against Russia. And the people they landed on were some of the worst war criminals of the 20th century. They picked people like uh, Stepan Bandera, the head of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the UN, 
and Roman Shulchevich, the Uns, uh, the head of the Uns militant offshoot, the Upa. Now, between them, the Un and the Upa, according to historians, killed up to 100,000 ethnic Poles during the war and thousands of Jews. They engaged in ethnic cleansing, in genocide. These were not good people. And the Ukrainians attempted to whitewash his history to present people like Bandera and Shulchevich as Democrats, as progressives, as people who believed in multi-ethnic states. And it wasn't so much that they were trying to promote the anti-Semitism that went with these figures. They were trying to whitewash it, to get rid of it. And that was something that was really disturbing to the local Jewish community. So you said that this was disturbing to the local Jewish community, but um, I was speaking to a member of that community in Kiev who said that she actually felt almost obligated to defend Bandera and Petlura now to kind of take on that banner, despite having grown up in a family that had told her the, the, about this history, knowing this history, but this is the dominant narrative and to be, and she wants to be a Ukrainian patriot. And in order to be a Ukrainian patriot, she has to tell the story, which I found really disconcerting. It was, it was something that, you know, for me to listen to somebody say that, that they have to deny the history they know is true in order to be a good Ukrainian. That made me nervous. Yeah. I, I have uh, come across not quite that extreme, but I've come across similar things. I think uh, things have evolved over time. In the beginning, people were a lot more angry about that. But as time went on and Russian aggression not only harmed untold numbers of Ukrainians, but also displaced and destroyed Jewish communities in the east of the country uh, at first, and then started to affect the rest of the country, people became increasingly tolerant of these narratives. So for instance, I recently spoke to a member of the Jewish community in Kharkiv who was telling me that she now greets people with uh, Slava Ukraina. Now, you know, taking that greeting, a Jew using that greeting would have been unthinkable a few years ago, but now it's standard because the meaning has changed. Perhaps you could tell us for what the meaning, original meaning is and what it means now. Yes. So Slava Ukraina, uh, glory to Ukraine, was the greeting used by the, uh, the Una and the Upa. The response, uh, Hiroim Slava, glory to the heroes, is considered both together, they're, con- they're considered a fascist greeting by many Jews and has since become very mainstream in Ukraine society. It's used in the military, it's used in civil society. And the original uh, association with anti-Semitic groups is really something that it just doesn't hold cultural currency anymore. It's just become part of daily life. You also hear it from supporters of Ukraine. I hear it from, we hear it from EU officials, right? Yeah. Uh, do they not know the history or do they not care or should we not care anymore, the rest of us? I mean, I'm not going to tell people, uh, Ukrainian Jews, what to feel. And it makes me uncomfortable. But if Jews in Ukraine are not, then I'm not going to tell them how to feel. I will say that I spent a lot of time over the past decade speaking to, to Jews from the communities of Donetsk and Lugansk who were displaced, who saw everything that they've worked to build since the fall of the Soviet Union totally taken away and destroyed by the Russians. So if, you know, if you go to these people and say this is a problem, they're going to look at you and say, 
the Russians destroyed our synagogue, you know, the synagogue in Mariupol. I've prayed in the synagogue in Mariupol previously. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. They're going to say, what do we care about the phrase the Ukrainians are saying if the Russians are attacking? And I think that actually gets back to a point uh, from earlier, which is the question about groups like the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion started out as an expressly far-right movement. And while it was integrated into the Ukrainian uh, military, it still has many far-right ties. And that is something that's honestly been disturbing. But I remember you know, asking uh, Jewish residents of Mariupol about it prior to the 2022 invasion. And the basic response I was getting is, who cares? They're, they're not attacking us. They're defending us. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem, but it's not the problem at the moment. Uh, I guess, you know, you have uh, a hierarchy of needs and it's gone down, you know, it's been taken down a few, a uh, few rungs. And Azov representatives will tell you that it's one of the most multi-ethnic units uh, in Ukraine. I don't know if that's true or not, but they certainly can point to Jews and people of a variety of ethnicities and from a variety of backgrounds serving. They claim that. I recently met with a uh, with an Azov officer who was in Israel on a goodwill tour, and he repeated those same claims about Jews in Azov. Uh, and I asked him, give me a name, one name, one phone number, one bit of information beyond a claim, anything to corroborate that. He says, okay, I'll get you that information. I never heard anything. Uh, this is something I've been asking you know, uh, I checked, I was asking the, uh, Ukrainian defense ministry, uh, the army's information service. I haven't been able to corroborate that. That doesn't mean there aren't, but, you know, if people keep making a claim and there's no proof behind it that they are able to provide, no matter how long and hard they're saying that, then, you know, it's, it's a little bit uh, concerning. Maybe it's less true than they want us to believe. But if it doesn't matter to Ukrainian Jews at present, I, you know, I see your point. Who are the rest of us to carry that banner? Yeah, exactly. I'm Jewish. I'm rabbi. <laughs> I'm here in Kiev and Ukraine. They don't need denisification. They need denisification. So today we're talking about anti-Semitism in Ukraine. And part of the reason we're doing that is because the Russians have said that it's a problem. Are the Russians um, speaking from a, a point of virtue here? Is anti-Semitism in um, Ukraine very much different from anti-Semitism in, in Russia? Uh, I think the Russians are definitely not speaking from a point of virtue here. Uh, one of the things that they've done since the beginning of the conflict has been to weaponize anti-Semitism. Uh, I'll tell you a story that I think encapsulates this very well. Uh, the day after the first uh, unmarked Russian troops started showing up in the Crimean Peninsula, the uh, rabbi of a uh, reform temple in Crimea got a phone call to show up because there was anti-Semitic graffiti on the doors of his uh, of his synagogue. And I remember speaking to him after, and he told me that he was very confused because the graffiti had the symbol of a far-right movement, a Ukrainian far-right movement that wasn't active in Crimea, had never 
been in Crimea, and their symbol had been uh, painted on the door of his synagogue backwards. And it only happened the day after the first Russians came in. So a while later, the same rabbi decided, who had grown up during the Soviet period, his father had been a Soviet naval officer, decided that he did not want to live under Russian control. So he decided to emigrate. And for some reason, to this day, I don't understand why he agreed to this. He allowed a uh, team from RT, the Russian State Television, to film him as he was packing and interview him. And when they eventually ran their uh, their segment on him, they basically reported that he was fleeing Crimea to escape from Ukrainian ultranationalists and anti-Semites. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense because one, the Russians had just taken over, so why would that be a concern? Uh, and two, the rabbi himself told me, they re-edited what I said to make it look like I said the opposite. And this is something I've heard time and again from community leaders, that they believe a lot of incidents that have happened since 2014 have been provocations from uh, from the Russians. And certainly, we've seen a lot of fake news. I hesitate to use the term fake news because it's used a lot by people trying to delegitimize the media. But in this case, it's really true. A lot of fake news coming from Russian state media about anti-Semitism reports that the Ukrainian government is shutting down schools and Jewish newspapers. There was uh, a report in Izvetsia once stating that members of a far-right group called Pravi Sector were beating up Jews across Odessa. I remember seeing this and calling up uh, a community leader in Odessa and going, hey, is there a pogrom? And I, he, I heard him turn to someone next to him they were muttering back and forth. He comes back to me. He goes, no, what about you? Any pogroms in Israel? <laughs> you know, it just it hadn't happened. It, you know, there, there's nothing like it. It didn't exist. But uh, the Russians, I don't, I don't think the Russians have much of a moral standpoint to discuss anti-Semitism. And in fact, I spoke to the leader of one community in Russia. Uh, I spoke to him, you know, uh, deep background. I can't say who he was or which community, but he told me, and this is something I confirmed through diplomatic sources as well, that Jewish community leaders in Russia were being actively pressured to publicly support the war, being told, you know, we'll close down your synagogues or your community centers if you don't. And as far as I know, the Russians haven't done that, but that didn't stop them from expressly telling people that I've been in touch with that they would. And so I think, you know, I, I think that's a lot more uh, anti-Jewish than anything coming out of Ukraine. Though I imagine they're also doing that with priests and mullahs and uh, Buddhist leaders. Yeah, it's not specific to the Jews. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't think Putin cares one way or other about the Jews. And if he does, there are enough indications that he has warm feelings. But at the end of the day, Putin does what's good for Putin. And if he has to instrumentalize racism against one group or another, if he has to invade another country, it's about what's good for him. And I don't think he's anti-Semitic. I think he's a self-interested autocrat. So amongst the many Ukrainians, the millions of Ukrainians who have been displaced have been proportionately a large number of Jews, right? Uh, in your experience, in your research, uh, have you noticed any differences uh, between what it's like to be a displaced Jewish Ukrainian and a displaced non-Jewish Ukrainian, or is it pretty much the same experience? 
So I remember uh, speaking with Natan Sharansky, the former Soviet refusenik, uh, who went on to become an Israeli government minister and then uh, head of the Jewish agency, which oversees foreign immigration to Israel. And I was speaking to him and he said, it used to be that Jews in Ukraine were envious of their non-Jewish colleagues because Jews would be discriminated against. But since the war started, he said, many uh, non-Jews are envious of their Jewish uh, co-nationalists because the Jews have the Jewish agency to help them get out, to take them to Israel. And I think uh, in, during the first years of the war, before the rest of the uh, world and the rest of Europe opened its doors to fleeing Ukrainians, you know, there was a certain advantage in being Jewish when you're leaving. Uh, you had Israel to take you to, to subsidize, to pay for your flight, to help you start a new life. Uh, I'll say that my own mother was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany after the Second World War. And when I was in Ukraine looking at, uh, you know, camps for internally displaced people during, uh, during the first years of the conflict, it was heartbreaking to me because I saw my own family story happening again. Uh, you know, thank God you have Poland is taking in millions of Ukrainians and Germany is taking in people and Ukrainians who are fleeing have somewhere to go, uh, non-Jews and Jews. It's just, it's honestly heartbreaking. What I can't tell you regarding Israel is that between 2014 and 2018, about 30,000 Ukrainians immigrated to Israel and that since 2022, there's just been a massive swell of tens of thousands of both Ukrainians and Russians fleeing to Israel. And that has had a certain amount of a backlash because many of them uh, qualify as Jewish under the law of return, which says if you have one Jewish grandparent, you can come. So much of the religious right in Israel has been very upset about that. Uh, but Israel has been very, very good when it comes to uh, to rescuing Jewish people and ethnically Jewish people from uh, from the conflict. It has more of a mixed record when it comes to people who are not Jewish, however. And how are they doing, the new immigrants from both Russia and Ukraine and Israel? Uh, I mean, in parts of Europe, we've heard of clashes and tension between uh, the Russians who have fled Russia since the start of the war and the Ukrainians who fled Ukraine since the start of the war. Is that something we're seeing in Israel as well? We haven't really seen any tension like that over here at all. Uh, I think part of it is because in Europe, Ukrainians who leave are obviously look, seeing themselves as Ukrainians and Russians leave, see themselves as Russians. Here, everyone who's coming, they see themselves as Jews. They see themselves as people who want to become Israeli. Obviously, many don't. Many people want to go home. They don't like being forced, you know, being displaced is a jarring, wrenching experience. But, you know, people are welcomed here being told, not you're a refugee and you're staying and you're an outsider, but welcome home. And I think that makes a big difference. Uh, as well, there's a very, very significant Russian-speaking minority in Israel. There are cities where you could go and walk and you're hearing nothing but Russian, uh, place neighborhoods in Haifa, neighborhoods in Ashdod. So, you you really have if you're a Russian or Ukrainian immigrant you have a place to land you have uh, a previous generation of immigrants who understand your problems you have institutions and Russian language newspapers and shops with 
uh, Ukrainian and Russian food. It's very, very different. Uh, my own, my own daughter has, uh, a Ukrainian refugee in her, in her class in grade school. It's, uh, something, you know, it's, it's, it's very different, I think, in Israel. Um, Ukraine's been critical of Israel for not taking a clear enough position, a clear enough line against Russia. Could you explain what Israel's position has been since 2014 and, and now over the past year or so? Yes. Uh, Israel has really tried to distance itself as much as it can from the conflict. Uh, after 2014, Israel barely, uh, made any statements. I can't recall any statements by Israel really about the conflict. Uh, Israel only started to make had to have any sort of involvement at all following the most recent invasion in 2022. A uh, large reason for Israel's reticence is, as uh, one politician here put it, we have Russia on our own border, meaning that Russian forces are active in Syria. And uh, the Israeli Air Force has been very active in uh, airstrikes against Syria to disrupt Iranian shipments of weapons going through Syria to Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And the feeling among members of the Israeli defense establishment and political classes is that anything that would disrupt uh, those strikes is bad for Israeli security. And those strikes are carried out with Russia's agreement. So any sort of escalation between Israel and Russia is something to be avoided. Now, I don't know how much water those arguments still hold, given how much of its military hardware Russia has been taking out of Syria. And I certainly hear the arguments from the Ukrainian side that it's important to fight against the use of Iranian weapon systems in in uh, in Ukraine, that this is a widening of Israel's conflict with the Iranians. Uh, but I don't think those arguments have done much to move the needle with policymakers here. Uh, moreover, you have to understand that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who just came back into power, very much, very much prides himself on keeping good relations with the Russians. In 2019, during a re-election campaign, he actually put up giant billboards featuring himself, Trump, Putin, and Modi uh, on a skyscraper in Tel Aviv. So this was something that many, many people in Israel really found offensive. Obviously, many didn't because they voted for him, but I think it's an important strategic objective for Jerusalem to make sure not that they don't piss off Russia too much. That being said, there are many, many Israelis who think Israel should be doing more. Uh, Israelis are split on what that means. Uh, you know, I can't say that there's a majority in favor of providing weapons to Ukraine, but I can't say that many Ukrainian Jews are very angry at Israel and that the Ukrainian government has enlisted uh, Jewish organizations to try to lobby Israel to provide weapons. I don't know if the Iron Dome system would be the best fit. Probably not, but Israel has the technology and the know-how to, to help. Uh, what's happening behind the scenes in terms of targeting factories where drones are made or uh, sharing intelligence, I couldn't tell you, but I can say that there are, there are people who are upset about Israel not doing more. Sam, thank you so much. This, I mean, I think 
this conversation has uh, elucidated for me, uh, and I think also for our listeners, just how many different factors are in play, both for Ukrainian Jews and for Ukraine-Israel relations. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us. Thank you uh, so much for having me. To read more from Sam, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Samuel Sokol. He's also, as we said earlier, published a book covering some of the issues we've discussed today. Um, it's called Putin's Hybrid War and the Jews, Antisemitism, Propaganda and the Displacement of Ukrainian Jewry. For more on crisis groups' work about Ukraine, as well as Israel and Palestine, you can check out our website, which is www.crisisgroup.org. And you can follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. And I'm at Olya Olaker. I'm also at Olya Olaker on Mastodon if you are migrating away from Twitter. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schwalb. But our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. Um, you can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We look forward to chatting with you again in just about two weeks. And until then, goodbye. Goodbye until next time. Goodbye.